Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, ko William Ray tēnei. Nau mai ki te hipi pāngo. Hi there, I'm William Ray. Welcome to Black Sheep. When he was a kid, John Nicholson had a portrait hanging in the hallway of his house. It was this rather stern-looking Victorian gentleman with a, a bit of a twinkle in his eye, and uh, we were told that he was a, a sort of ancestor of ours and that he had a, a very romantic background in early New Zealand history. The man in that portrait was Frederick Manning. He's probably most famous as one of the first judges on the Native Land Court, and for the popular books he wrote about his life as one of the first Pākehā to settle in Aotearoa. He arrived in Hokianga in 1833 and lived there for much of the rest of his life. We were told that he married a Māori princess, which sounded very romantic. That's always the way, isn't it? It's always Māori princesses, it's never just... Well, that's right, yes. (laughs) Yes, everybody's a Māori princess, yes. The story went that Frederick Manning was a friend to Māori. We were told that he sided with Māori. He advised them not to sign the Treaty of Waitangi. We were told lots of lots of things like that, which were... Some of them were true, some of them were not true. And, you know, a lot of them were somewhere in between. One part which was true was that Frederick Manning really did marry a high-ranking Ngāpui Wahine in Hokianga. They had four children, and many of their descendants still live in Aotearoa today. I contacted some while working on this podcast, but those I spoke to either felt they didn't know enough of the story to talk or just didn't want to be interviewed on tape. One said, and I quote, I'm not talking about that Irish bastard. Of course, I was able to talk to John Nicholson. He's descended from one of Frederick Manning's younger brothers, so he's not a direct descendant, but he is a relative. Another thing John was told about Frederick Manning, which was true, is that he wrote two popular books based on his early life. Manning's first book, Old New Zealand, was published in 1863, in the middle of the Waikato War. In the first chapter, he takes a crusading tone in supporting Kingitanga in their fight against the British. Success to you, O King of Waikato! May your mana never be less. Long may you hold at bay the demon of civilization. Though fall at last, I fear you must. Plutus with golden hoof is trampling on your landmarks. He mocks the war song. But should I see your fall, at least one Pākehā Māori shall raise the tangi, and with flint and shell as of old, 
shall the women lament you. So far, Frederick Manning is sounding just as romantic as John Nicholson was told as a kid. He's joining a tribal community, learning their ways, taking their side against the colonial oppressors. It's a familiar trope you see in all kinds of books and movies. Dances with wolves, Avatar. Tell them, Tarek Makto calls to them. Are you fly now? With me. My brothers. Sisters. John Nicholson played around with this trope when coming up with the title for the book he eventually wrote about Frederick Manning. White Chief, the colourful life and times of Judge F. E. Manning of the Hokianga. But when he was doing the initial research for this book, John uncovered a side to Frederick Manning which was very different to Jake Sully in Avatar. To an extent, I, I started my research at the beginning and, and started by finding this really quite attractive person whose reputation tallied with what I'd been told. It was a while before I sort of got into his, the sort of middle period of his correspondence and his writing and it just got worse and worse, William. John Nicholson discovered that while Manning wrote romantically about Māori in his books, many of his private letters describe Māori in the most denigrating terms you can imagine, especially later in life. In 1872, while serving as a native land court judge, he wrote, Until you can make a tiger live on hay, you can make nothing of the Maori but a mean, treacherous, vain, lying and dangerous rowdy, cunning as Satan and dangerous as the serpent. There is only one policy to settle the difficulty... And that is War à l'outrance. War à l'outrance, or guerre à l'outrance, is a French expression. It basically means all-out war, or war without restraint. So, who was Frederick Manning? What explains this transition from a romantic early Pākehā settler to a war-hungry racist? And what explains his role on the Native Land Court, an institution which the Ngāti Whātua Kaumatua and academic Hugh Kāwharu famously described as an engine of destruction for any tribe's tenure of land anywhere. This should be an easy question to answer. Manning didn't exactly keep his ideas to himself, he wrote a couple of books, dozens of newspaper columns, and thousands upon thousands of letters. The problem is, when it comes to Frederick Manning, it's hard to know if you can believe what you're reading. There's an awful lot of stuff that Frederick Manning said that is just nonsense. It was designed to, to embellish his public image and, and to make him look you know, more influential, more important more knowledgeable than he really was. So let's wind back to the beginning. Frederick Manning was born in Dublin, probably on July 5th in either 1811 or 1812. His family were Anglo 
Irish. They were a middle-class Protestant Irish family with fairly progressive views. They were in favour of Irish independence and Catholic emancipation, which was fairly enlightened for a, for a Protestant family. Frederick Manning's father, he at least dabbled in art dealing because he brought quite a an extensive collection of European old master paintings with him when he when they came to Hobart. The Manning family immigrated to Tasmania in 1823 when Frederick was about 10, so that his dad could take up a colonial land grant as a farmer. But he quickly discovered that it was a little bit different trying to farm in the wilds of Tasmania after being an art dealer in, in Dublin. <laughs> so uh, he went back to Hobart and got a job in the customs service in Hobart. So the three boys, Frederick was the oldest, and his two younger brothers were, were brought up in Hobart. Maybe those few years where his dad was farming made an impression on Frederick Manning, because around about the time he was 20, he left home to manage an isolated station in the northwest of Tasmania. This seems to have been one of the happiest times of Frederick Manning's life. He loved being out in the bush, shooting his own meat, growing his own veggies, camping out under the stars. He was a young man with a very sunny disposition, a guy who wants to really have a go at life, wants to gulp it all up with enthusiasm and, you know, regards life as fun and and an adventure. I think that was the sort of young man he was. We know very little about Manning's interaction with Aboriginal Tasmanians who were suffering a near-total genocide at the hands of white settlers in this period. Frederick's family seemed to have been relatively sympathetic towards Aboriginal people by the standards of their time, although the standards of the time were pretty horrific, so maybe that doesn't say much. Every now and again, Frederick would drag himself out of the bush to visit Hobart for business or to visit family and to get a whiskey or two. You know, spends a bit of time in the waterfront pubs and mixes with all the the sailors and got talking particularly with the whalers who a lot of them were operating around New Zealand shores and um, found out about this beautiful and untouched country with a population of proud and independent people and he really liked the sound of it. He said he liked the sound of a place that was unspoiled by civilizations, by the plagues of civilization as he called them and he would he would sort of list them regularly taxes, you know, government inspectors of one kind or another. Bishops was another one. He, he listed it as one of the plagues of civilization. He just liked the idea of being able to go somewhere where he could play around and be independent, have fun, shoot pigs, without ha- anybody telling him what he could or couldn't do. In July 1833, the Mary and Elizabeth sailed into Hokianga Harbour anchoring near Ngati Korokoro Kainga at Pākane. Moitara, the local rangatira, rode out to inspect the cargo and invited the new arrivals ashore, including 21-year-old Frederick Manning. Dressed himself up in his, his new finery and elbowed his way to the front of the queue and uh, got into the boat and he was, he was rowed towards the shore, but there's a big shelf of sloping rock that goes down into the water and even a small boat is not able to actually get to the shore. There was a, 
was about six or seven metres where most people would have just waded ashore. But uh, local Māori being very hospitable, a number of them came in and, and offered themselves to piggyback people ashore. Manning obviously loved telling the story of his arrival in Aotearoa because it stretches across two chapters of his old New Zealand book. Having tightened on my hat and buttoned up my coat, I fairly mounted on the broad shoulders of my Aboriginal friend. Manning himself was not a small man. He was six foot five. The man who was piggybacking him took a couple of steps towards shore. The rock is slippery. Backwards he goes. Back, back. The step is near. Is past. Down, down we go. Backwards and headlong to the depths below. Both of them get grabbed by the tide which is ebbing and taking them out towards the opening of the of the Hokianga. Now I am wrong end uppermost, drifting away with the tide and ballasted with heavy pistols, boots, tight clothes and all the straps and strings of civilization. You know, when they finally surface, Manning says that he knew instinctively that he had been insulted by being being ducked in this unseemly way and and so he immediately throws himself on the on the Maori man and, and they fight and wrestle in the water. I dart upon him like a hungry shark. I have him, I have him under. Down, villain, down to the kraken and the whale, to the Tanifa cave. Down, down, down. As we sank, I heard one grand roar of wild laughter from the shore. The word Utu, I heard, roared by many voices, but did not then know its import. They, they swim to shore and they finish the, the business on the beach. They, they continue to wrestle with a, a local crowd all around, some of them taking the local champion's side and some taking the, the Pakeha's side sportingly. I saw my friend's knees beginning to tremble. I made a great effort, administered my favourite remedy, and there lay the Maori prone upon the sand. I stood a victor. And like many other conquerors, a very great loser. There I stood, minus hat, coat and pistols, wet and mould, and transformed very considerably for the worse since I left the ship. Now, this story is probably more than a little embellished, but historians I've read think it's mostly truthful, and it seems to have won Manning some respect. I mean, it's an incident that really sets him up for life in the Hokianga because he immediately acquires this larger-than-life reputation for being strong, bold, courageous, difficult to beat in a fair fight, and apparently having the instincts to know that that was the way he he needed to react to being dumped in the water. Manning claimed he reacted the way he did because he innately understood the Māori concept of utu, which can be loosely translated as reciprocity or balanced exchange. Now, I'm not sure whether that's strictly true, that he somehow instinctively knew that you know, Māori's sensibility would require him to to react in that way, or or whether he was simply being a Manning, which would mean that he would feel insulted and 
and cross about that, but may have been a, a mixture of the two. But it is a great story. It's uh, beautifully told in old New Zealand. The whole book is a bit like that. It's a, it's still a really good read, I think. He, if, if nothing else, he was a great writer. A great writer and a great fighter. Frederick Manning always enjoyed a good scrap, verbal or physical. Even in his days as a judge, he said to have once jumped over the bench to punch a witness in the face. After dusting himself off, Manning announced he wanted to settle among Māori and the Hokianga as a trader. And he was far from the first European to make this move. Manning said he was greeted by several other Pākehā who already lived in the area. There were dozens of, of men, and they were young men, and they came from a whole variety of different backgrounds. Ngāti Rarawa historian Paul White has extensively researched the stories of Pākehā men like Frederick Manning, who came to live in the Hokianga before the signing of Te Tiriti. The ones that I'm familiar with came because they wanted something different, something better. For example, one of my ancestors, aged 15, jumped a ship in the east end of London and came out to New Zealand, arriving here in 1828. He was from a long line of bakers. He came over here, got into into the sawing industry, but he was just obviously looking for adventure and escape, and he came out here and he never left. He had nine children. He's probably got 10,000 descendants now. The men Paul White's researched mostly came from working-class backgrounds. Frederick Manning was a little different. He came from a moderately wealthy middle-class family, so he had the cash and connections to set himself up as a trader. And as Te Rarua Kaumatua Hami Piripi points out, Hokianga Māori were keen to have people like Manning living alongside them. I think it would be true to say that everybody wanted to have a pākehā of their own, because with that pākehā you could access anything. Manning actually wrote about the importance of these Pākehā settlers to Māori early on in his old New Zealand book. He said, In those days, the value of a Pākehā to a tribe was enormous. For want of Pākehās to trade with, and from whom to procure gunpowder and muskets, many tribes or sections of tribes were about this time exterminated, or nearly so, by their more fortunate neighbours, who got Pākehās before them, and who consequently became armed with muskets first. A Pākehā trader was therefore of a value, say, about 20 times his own weight in muskets. They went both ways, of course. Māori wanted European muskets, clothing, tobacco and metal tools, while Europeans were hungry for Māori pork, potatoes, flax and timber. In Hokianga, the big business was ship construction and timber export. People like Manning would set up relations with a local hapū and build up the infrastructure for tree felling, an effort which combined Māori knowledge and labour with Pākehā technology and trading networks. But it was never easy. Hokianga wasn't as tame as the East Coast. It wasn't as popular. What do you mean by tame? Well, you yeah, you you always get a bit of resistance in Hokianga. <laughs> it's a testing place physically as well as every other in every other aspect of your life. It's a, and it's a, it's, a, it's a port that that I think Europeans never really favoured. They much preferred the hellhole of the Pacific and Kororarika, where you get women for or whatever. And you never do that in Hokianga. You get your nose punched. It's difficult to track Manning's early years in Hokianga. 
His stories in Old New Zealand don't follow a chronological order, and he rarely uses the name of people or places. He just talks about my old friend, the chief, or things like that. We know Manning lived alongside two hapū. First, Ngāti Korokoro, and then for a much longer time, with Tehikutu, who lived near the heart of Hokianga, near the mouth of the Firanaki River. We also know that at some point, Frederick Manning married a high-ranking Tehikutu woman named Moingaroa, although it was probably a traditional Māori union rather than a Christian wedding. I reached out to Tehikutu, but sadly the Komatua who held the most mātauranga of Frederick Manning died last year, and nobody else I spoke to felt they knew enough of the history to talk on tape. But John Nicholson was able to piece together some of the story back in the 1990s and early 2000s by talking to Tehikutu elders and to Manning's descendants. Of course, John also had Frederick Manning's correspondence with his family from this time, but Manning was less than forthcoming about his life with Tehikutu in those letters, especially his relationship with Moingaroa and their children. He doesn't write to them at all about it until he has to. And he doesn't write much about them in old New Zealand either. He refers to Moingaroa in a very kind of oblique and abstract way. He doesn't tell his family about her. And it, look, I guess all you can conclude is that he didn't want the European world, and particularly his family, to know that he was cohabiting with a, a Māori woman. As Harmi Pitipi points out, though, these marriages between early Pākehā settlers and high-ranking Māori women were very common. They all had Māori wives. And why was that important? Well, it's your ticket. It's like having one of those zip-zap cards in the hotel. <laughs> it gets you everywhere, you know, particularly if you had children. Marrying a senior wahine and having children meant Manning was protected by the mana of the tribe. It also made it much easier to access land, resources and labour. And Moingaroa was a very eligible match for Manning. Pretty lucky where the heck two people come from. That is the centre of Hokianga, that is the hub of Hokianga, you know. And for him to be married into there gave him a window into lots of Hokianga activity. So he would have been promoted up the, up the ranks of importance almost overnight. But John Nicholson thinks there was more to this relationship than just economic or political gain. The things that he does say about her privately, in private correspondence with his good friends, you get the impression that he did love her and he enjoyed her company, he enjoyed his family life when the kids were all young, and he loved his kids. He had he spoke of the the hopes that he had for his son and, and the hopes that he would grow up to become an important person in his tribe and but there was this yes nonetheless at the bottom of it there's this sense of embarrassment on his part at, at at what he was what he was doing there are parts of manning's books which deal with these conflicted feelings again writing in the context of the waikato war he said this in old new zealand i must not trust myself to write on these matters I get so confused. I feel just as if I was two different persons at the same time. Sometimes I find myself thinking on the Maori side, and then just afterwards wondering if we can lick the Maori and set the law upon its legs, which is the only way to do it. 
I therefore hope the reader will make allowance for any little apparent inconsistency in my ideas, as I really cannot help it. I belong to both parties. And while Manning would write horrific things about Māori later in life, John Nicholson thinks his admiration for tangata whenua in these early years was probably genuine. You get the impression that he really loved it. He threw himself into the local Māori society. As we've already seen, he was a strong man. He was a, he was a good wrestler and, and he enjoyed a fight. So he was respected from that point of view. He traded a bit of flax and pork and potatoes, a little bit of timber, um, got into a partnership with another European trader. Uh, he, he obviously loved his time there. He was, he was enjoying his time. That's not to say these early years were totally smooth sailing. Manning writes about violent disputes with a couple of people. And as a newcomer in a new land, he also got into big trouble for breaching tikanga, Māori customary law. There's one particularly bad incident he talks about in old New Zealand, and it happened when he was out walking with some Māori friends. I came to where the side of a hill had fallen down onto the beach and exposed a number of human bones. There was a large skull rolling about in the water. I took up this skull without consideration, carried it to the side of the hill, scraped a hole and covered it up. Manning probably assumed he was doing a good deed, but then he turned around and saw the reaction of his friends. I saw at once, by the astonishment and dismay depicted on their countenances, that I had committed some most unfortunate act. They soon let me know that the hill had been a burying place of their tribe. By touching the skull, Manning had committed a massive violation of tapu, and therefore became tapu himself. And he only made things worse later that day. Manning's friends cooked up some potatoes for a meal. The correct protocol was for Manning to be fed by another person, so that he didn't touch the food with his hands and make it tapu as well. But Manning didn't understand this, so he picked up his knife and reached for a potato. I was checked by an exclamation of horror and surprise from the whole band. Oh, what are you about? You are not going to touch food with your hands? Indeed, but I am, said I, and stretched out my hand. Hear another scream. You must not do that. It's the worst of all things. One of us will feed you. It's wrong, wrong, very wrong. Manning, apparently still not realising the seriousness of the situation, went on eating, and his companions left in disgust. Eventually, they sent a tohunga, an expert on spiritual matters, to sort things out. But when this tohunga told Manning to strip down and throw away his clothes, he lost his temper, started yelling, and raised his fists. The tohunga could not mistake my warlike and rebellious attitude 
and could see clearly I was going into one of those most unaccountable rages that Pakehas were liable to fly into without any imaginable cause. Boy, he said gravely and quietly, and without seeming to notice my very noticeable declaration of war and independence, don't act foolishly, don't go mad. No one will ever come near you while you have those clothes. You will be miserable here by yourself. And what is the use of being angry? What will anger do for you? The perfect coolness of my old friend, the complete disregard he paid to my explosion of wrath, as well as his reasoning, began to make me feel a little disconcerted. He evidently had come with the purpose and intention to get me out of a very awkward scrape. So Manning says he put away his pride, followed the Tohunga's instructions, and the tapu was lifted. Over time, Frederick Manning learned to live in the Māori world. He became fluent in te reo and increased his grasp of tikanga. But this Māori world was changing rapidly. More and more Europeans were arriving and some were causing significant problems, especially in the north. The New Zealand company was plotting its mass migration to Aotearoa and some in the British government were fearful of what that might mean for Māori. So, in February 1840, Captain William Hobson landed in the Bay of Islands with orders to sign a treaty with Māori. Having gained more than 40 signatures from Rangatira at Waitangi, he sailed up around Cape Reinga and into Hokianga, looking for more. He landed at Mangumu and was met by a huge crowd of Māori, it said more than 2,500 people turned up. The first to speak was Apira Hamataunui of Te Popoto. His translated words are recorded by the missionary, Richard Taylor. We are glad to see the governor, but let him come as a governor to the Pākehā. As for us, we want no governor. How do the Pākehā behave to the blackfellows at Port Jackson? They treat them like dogs. Another rangatira, Mohitafai, also raised his voice. All we think is that you came to deceive us. The Pākehā tells us so, and we believe what he has to say. Hobson interjected. Speak your own words, not what bad men have told you. The chiefs were insulted, and an argument flared up. But then William Hobson spotted a tall, fair-haired man at the back of the crowd, Frederick Manning. Hobson had heard all about Frederick Manning from the missionaries. They'd painted him as an Irish Catholic troublemaker who was a corrupting influence on Māori, a sellout and undoubtedly a black sheep in British eyes. If you're wondering why they were saying such nasty things, well, there was a mutual dislike between Manning and the missionaries. Yeah, he's not keen on the missionaries, and he describes himself as an atheist. He seemed to have got on okay with the Catholic missionary, but the um, certainly the Protestant Christian missionaries he was not keen on at all. 
You might remember Manning mentioned bishops as one of those scourges of civilization who'd come to Aotearoa to escape. Unfortunately, it turned out the clergy had beaten him here, and Manning seemed to have grated under their moralistic attitudes. In any case, William Hobson said that he identified Frederick Manning as the reason the chiefs at Mangungu were reluctant to sign the treaty. So, he called them forward. I asked his motive for endeavouring to defeat the benevolent object of Her Majesty, whose desire it is to secure to those people their just rights, and to the European settlers' peace and civil government. He replied that he conscientiously believed that the natives would be degraded under our influence, and that therefore he had advised them to resist. Hobson was furious. He asked if Manning was aware that English laws could only be enforced on English soil. Without a signed treaty, he claimed he was powerless to prevent settlers from abusing Māori. According to Hobson, Manning replied sort of sheepishly. I am not aware. I am not a lawyer. Hobson said that he told Manning to take a seat and then turned to the assembled rangatira. If you listen to such counsel and oppose me, you will be stripped of all your land by a worthless class of British subjects who will consult no interest but their own and who care not how much they trample on your rights. I am sent here to control such people and I ask from you the authority to do so. In the end, Mangungu became the single largest signing of Te Tiriti o Waitangi. 64 signatures were collected. Manning's reasons for opposing the treaty are slightly mysterious, but John Nicholson has some suspicions. The thing that he liked about Aotearoa was that it was independent. It was free of those scourges of civilization. There was an existing society which he respected. He was struck by the nobility. He was struck by the courtesy of day-to-day relationships between people Uh, He was struck by courage and physical prowess. He was struck by a lot of things that he thought didn't exist in Pākehā society. And so, yes, there was a little bit of self-interest in that he wanted to enjoy that society without the Europeans coming in and wrecking it. But obviously, he thought it was in the interests of Māori to be allowed to continue to enjoy that society that they had developed without it being wrecked by outsiders. That said, John Nicholson thinks William Hobson was probably exaggerating when he suggested that Manning played a central role in convincing Hokianga Māori to oppose the treaty. And Harmi Pitipi agrees. I'm sure he, he would have considered himself to be in a privileged position to be delivering advice. And that would be the result of his marital connections and, and very often you do find yourself in a situation of delivering advice, but delivering advice and having res- advice received and responded to is something else. And I don't think much of his advice was ever received and responded to um, positively. Unfortunately, the Treaty of Waitangi didn't put an end to conflict between Māori and Pākehā. The British continually encroached on Māori land and sovereignty. Five years after he became the first rangatira to sign the treaty, the famous Ngāpui chief, Oneheke, would protest this encroachment. 
repeatedly cutting down the flagstaff overlooking Kororaraka and launching a raid on the town itself. It was the trigger for the first sustained armed conflict between Māori and the British. The Northern War. Over the next two decades or so, a series of violent conflicts over land and authority would fundamentally reshape Aotearoa. And these conflicts may also have played a role in reshaping Frederick Manning. Up until this point, you've heard something which resembles that romantic story John Nicholson was told about Manning as a kid. After the Northern War, we see a very different side to Frederick Manning. In the next episode, we'll talk about Frederick Manning's experience of the Northern War. The military does the major part of the fighting and gets roundly defeated. The tragedies he faced. Everything is just dreadful. Well, of course you would feel that if, you, if your daughter was dying in front of you and there was bugger all you could do about it. And his role on the Native Land Court. The role of the court was to get all superfluous land in the hands of settlers these judges achieved that, so they were good judges. <laughs> if achieving the colonial project is what you call it. Huge thanks to my guests this episode John Nicholson, Harmi Pitipi, and Paul White. John's book is White Chief The Colourful Life and Times of Judge Effie Manning of the Hokianga. To make sure you never miss an episode of Black Sheep, you can follow or subscribe for free on your favourite podcasting app or on the RNZ website. And while you're there, smash the subscribe button on some other excellent RNZ podcasts. One which you might want to have a listen to is the Aotearoa History Show. We have an episode of that podcast all about the Native Land Court, and it gives some good context to understand the next chapter of our story, which is going to focus a bit more on Frederick Manning's later career as a Land Court judge. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. Our sound engineer is William Saunders, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our voice actors were Peter Hambleton, Tamamuru, Duncan Smith, and Julian Wilcox. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.